Well, we are over in Mark's Gospel, the third chapter. Can the bad attitude of people around me stop the power of God working for me? How many around bad, bad attitude people? Sometimes they're in our homes. Sometimes they're in our workplaces. Sometimes they're just family that we go visit here and there. But we have some bad attitude people that are around us. And can they keep us from getting, to, getting the power of God to go? Now, there's three different stories we're going to refer to. One we're going to be looking at today to come to this answer. And the answer may not be as simple as yes or no. But we're going to take a look at this. We're also going to take a look at something we don't check into too often. But it's right here in this passage, and it's hard to get out of this. Are the Sabbath laws for today, and what constitutes work on the Sabbath? Anybody interested in that? We're going to do a deal with that, because it is here in the, in the questions that they're asking. And I bet if I were to do a poll around and ask people, what is work on the Sabbath, we would probably get a dozen different answers. But no one's real sure as to what they are. So I just figure, let's go back to the Word of God and find out. Here's the problem with finding that out, though. In the Bible, when it gives the, the, the word for the, uh, for the law for the Sabbath, it just says, don't do any work. So, what is work? There is a place where we can find an answer for that, and I am gonna, uh, we're all going to get there as we, uh, as we go on with this. I uh, also want to take a look at this. Will someone else's rules or laws alter your obedience to the Word of God. Because this day, we have a whole lot of other laws that are coming in that are trying to get us to alter our obedience to the Word of God. Well, last week we looked at the rooftop paralytic. I did get a text from um, somebody who noted that some of the things going on in the Mideast, Middle East, that uh, I think one of the rescue attempts that they made was right through the roof. <laughs> well, that was interesting to see. But other people can help us get to where we need to with our faith, but it's not the way that a lot of people think. Sometimes we just want to get a mass number of people praying. The more people I can get praying, then the better. But that's really all you're trying to say there is that, God, the more people I can get to ask you this, the more likely you are to say yes. And that is to disbelieve so many areas and so many aspects of the Word of God that how can we be in faith and have that, that uh, outlook? So we spent some time on it last week. If you weren't here, you can go back up on the video formats that we have or the audio podcast, things like that, and you can, you can check those things out. But here, let's, uh, let's get on back to what we're doing here today. And this is in Mark chapter 3. And he entered the synagogue again, and a man was there who had a withered hand. So it just means he was coming again into the synagogue. He's been in this one before. But he entered the synagogue again, and a man was there who had a withered hand. Now, the withered hand, hand here, for all of those of you who like uh, breaking down English and Greek and so forth like that, this is actually in the perfect participle, and I'm sure that makes a whole lot of sense for everybody here. <laughs> what it basically means is a past-completed action having present and continuing results. A past-completed action having present and continuing results. Another place that you will see this is in the, uh, the work of Jesus. It is a past-completed action that has present and continuing results. What this means by putting in this particular tense and why I bring this out is this man was not born in this condition. This occurred sometime in the past. It was a single act, but it has had occurred and it is continuing to have 
present day effects. More than likely, this is from an injury, but it is possible that it is from a disease. But more than likely, it is from an injury. Now, the history on this tells us, the legend and so forth, the things that are passed down, they tell us that this man was a bricklayer. If you get over into Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 6 and verse 6, we find out that Luke adds this detail since he's the physician. He tells us it is the right hand. The other two leave that out. Now, if he's right-handed, and you, you probably would use that the most, you could see where that would be the one that is injured. So if he was a bricklayer and his right hand is now injured, that means he is no longer working. And that can certainly have an effect for him. But he is here in the synagogue. So it says, And he entered the synagogue again, and a man was there who had a withered hand. Now in Luke's Gospel, let's just read this, Luke 6, verse 6. Now it happened on another Sabbath also that he entered the synagogue and taught. Luke is the one who has the detail about the right hand, and he's also the one who has the detail that Jesus was teaching in this synagogue when this occurs. So he is under the teaching anointing, which is what we saw last week with the rooftop paralytic. We saw that the presence of God was, or the, the Spirit of God was present to heal them. But he was teaching at the time. So while he was under the teaching anointing, there was anointing there for healing. Here we're going to see this, that there was a, he was operating under the teaching anointing. Verse 2, so they watched him closely, whether he would heal on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. They watched him closely. They're, they're keeping an eye on this. Now, get you into, into perspective on this. How many of you young people here, uh, especially brothers and sisters, uh, we had our young folks in here, this, the service today. How many of you have been in a car ride with your brother and sister and mischief is afloat? Things are going on. Things are being thrown. Things are being poked. Uh, stuff is being pulled on, taken, stuff like that. This is going on. Once that happens a few times, what happens to your outlook while you're in the back seat? You are watching closely. How many have ever tried to pull this? I know I did it when I was a kid. You pretend like you're looking at whatever it is that you're looking at, but you're not. You're completely concentrated on your peripheral vision and you are waiting for the moment when they make a move. I'm, I'm waiting. When you make that move, I am going to be ready. For, I am so ready for you making that move. And so as soon as they begin to, to sneak on up there, bam, you got them. Isn't that right? That's exactly what's going on here. They are watching closely. They don't care about anything else that's happening in the service. They don't care what's being taught. They don't care whose needs are being met. All they care about is we're watching, we're waiting. We want to see when Jesus moves out into this healing area. So even though we are early on in Jesus' ministry, they are prepared enough to know that more than likely Jesus is going to try and do some of this healing stuff here on the Sabbath day. They don't care that he healed. They care that he did it on the Sabbath. They don't want this kind of stuff going on in the Sabbath. This is our synagogue. This is our uh, our place to be at the Sabbath. And we don't want this. So as soon as you do this, we are going to accuse you. Kind of like in the back seat with the brother or sister. As soon as they make a move, Mom! Right? We're ready. We're ready for the accuse. We are ready to make the accusation. 
They're on my side. This is what they're doing. Now they come in here on the Sabbath or in the, in the synagogue. I think uh, being early on in Jesus' ministry, and we know from the stories before that because of the people not listening to Jesus and going out and spreading the fame about him, that he was not able to enter into the cities and, and minister out of there. So he was doing a lot of ministries out in the, uh, in the wilderness. But here on the Sabbath, everybody is over there in the synagogue. And so he comes over to the synagogue and he ministers out of the, out of the synagogue. If the Pharisees and if the religious leaders were to follow him out into the wilderness meetings, then that might draw a kind of an eye from the people. Oh, well, they must think that Jesus is okay. They must, they must like that. Well, this is good. They're putting their stamp of approval on them. And they're not. And they probably don't want to be seen as doing that. So this is a safer place because where else are they supposed to be on the Sabbath? They're supposed to be here in the synagogue. So they watched him closely. We're going to check this out. Now, as we said, they don't care about seeing the power of God. They don't want to see the power of God. They just want to see, are you going to do this? Are you going to move out in this area on the Sabbath? Matthew adds this in chapter 12 and verse 10. And behold, there was a man who had the withered hand. And they asked him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath that they might accuse him? Now, this account is in three Gospels. John does not include this. But it's in three Gospels. Here in Matthew, Matthew puts this in here. They asked him. Luke and Mark do not. Luke and Mark say that they thought this. That they were, this was what was on the inside of them. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, perceiving what they were saying, what they were intending to do, he speaks it. Now, it may be that Matthew is looking at this episode, this, this whole encounter here, and he is saying the entire crux of what we've got here is simply that they want to accuse him and their question of can we do this on the Sabbath. So he just puts it out there like it is a vocal question. I mean, we're going to look at some of one more verse of Scripture that's coming up and you're going to see this. The atmosphere was heavy with this. It seemed like everybody in the place knew this was going on. So Matthew probably just puts it here, look, this is, this is what the issue was. It wasn't so much how he was healed, what he was healed of. The big thing was, can we do this on the Sabbath? And this is where it came to a battle. So Matthew writes it in there like that. In Mark chapter 3, verse 3, And he said to the man who had the withered hand, Step forward. Now, if you are prone to go to the Greek like I am, one of the first things I did when I did this, I went back and I, I just looked up this word. I had the notes on it. I know what the notes said, but I went back and looked at this word and just checked some things out for it. You remember when we were in the, uh, the, the man with the, who was paralyzed and he's at the pool in Bethesda? Remember the words that Jesus spoke to him? How many remember those words? Rise, take up your bed, and walk. Do you remember the words that he said to the paralytic? Rise, take up your bed, and go home. That word there, rise, is exactly the same word that is translated step. 
Now, most of the time, this word is translated rise. This is really the meaning behind it. Uh, it is used in a, in a, it's used very often in scripture. It's not a, a, a word that's only used, you know, a dozen times or so. But actually, if you want to see what this is actually saying here, and I guess it just didn't sound right in English, but if you understand what's going on in this, in this synagogue here, then the actual translation will make more sense to you. Now, this isn't my translation. If you have uh, access to a copy of Wiest, you will see that Wiest puts this in his notes. If you have access to the pulpit commentary, you will see that the pulpit commentary puts these things in your notes. I believe Expositors puts this in your notes. You will not want to get Expositors. If you don't have a copy of it, don't go to buy, buy it. Because you're going to have to know some Greek in order to be able to read that. He is one who will put the sentences half in Greek and half in English. And that is a waste of time for most people to, to spend time reading that. So, you don't have to go to those, but those other ones are completely in English. You can read that. And you will find they put this exact same note in both of those places, and that is this. Not step forward, but be rising into the midst. He does not tell this man step forward, but really, when you think about this, we're in a meeting. If we were to have a meeting here, and I was to call somebody to come up, what would we say? You know, come here, step forward. We won't be saying, be rising into the midst. But that's what he's saying here. So it seems like the atmosphere is well known. And that's why Matthew probably puts it in a vocalized thing that he actually said this. Because this is all through the place. They all seem to know that this is going on. Have you ever had a, a place, you know, you had a, gone over to a relative's house? And somebody made the mistake of bringing up a certain topic. You ever been there with that? You know not to bring up that topic in the presence of certain relatives. But somebody brought up that topic. And you know, from the moment they did that, the atmosphere in the place changed. And now there's an expectation. Oh, no. Uncle, aunt, nephew, whoever it might be, they're going to go off now. You all know it's, it's going to happen. We, we started it off. We got it going. So Jesus is aware of their thoughts Apparently, the people are aware of their thoughts. And I think, we'll have to wait to get to heaven on this, but I think the man who has the withered hand is aware of the thinking that's going around. They're just waiting to see if he's going to call me out. Oh, I don't want him to call me out. Can you imagine being in a, healing, a, a meeting and the possibility is there that you could get healed and kind of hoping, I hope he doesn't call on me. Be rising into the midst. Now, what's interesting is that the laws of the Pharisees allow for healing on the Sabbath for life and death purposes only. So if you are going to die today, it's okay for you to get healed. <laughs> if you're not going to die, come back the next day. But if you going to die, if, if this is a life or death situation, and you may not be here until the Sabbath is over, all right, we'll let the laws go so that you can, you can get here. It's actually what they wrote in there. Life and death purposes only. You ever been in a church service where bad attitudes are going on? I have. Not here, but other places. Oh, I'll tell you what, you can, some people just put a, Bad charge in the atmosphere. 
Now, I think this is, this is very interesting here. He says, be arising into the midst. And we all know he gets healed. So this is a negative atmosphere. People are doubting. People are waiting. Jesus, make a mistake. Just make, we want you to do this. Ask him to step out. Heal him. We want you to do it because we are going to be all over that. This is the atmosphere. And yet, the power of God was there to heal the man. That's kind of amazing, isn't it? Now, Jairus, when, when, when they went to Jairus' house, remember what Jesus did with the doubters? He put them out. What happened to the doubters with the rooftop paralytic? They shut down the meeting for the rest of the people getting healed, but that man was able to get healed. So we're going to come back to this. How come the power of God was able to move and heal the paralytic, but it healed no one else? How come the power of God was able to move in this atmosphere and heal this man? And why does Jesus put the doubters out? There has to be a reason for it, right? That's what I thought. Now, remember when Jesus faced the storm on the water? Do you remember what he spoke to? He spoke to the wind. Spoke to the wind so that it would quiet, quiet down. Guess what Jesus is going to do? He's in the midst of a storm and he is going to speak. But this time, instead of speaking to the wind, he's going to speak to the crowd. He's going to tell them some things. He's going to say, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they kept silent. He spoke to them. Now, does Jesus expect the Pharisees to change? How many think that Jesus expects the Pharisees to say, you know what? We repent. We are sorry. How many expect that to happen? Mm -mm. If we don't expect that to happen, do you think Jesus expected that to happen? <coughs> so here's my question. If Jesus doesn't expect that to happen, why does Jesus speak to them? If he does not expect them to change, why does he speak to them? I wrote this in your outline for you. I want to make sure that you can get this. Because we sometimes deal with evil people and Jesus is dealing with evil people. You sometimes will have to speak to evil people. You do not always speak to evil people to get them to change. Sometimes, well, I'm just not going to say anything because it's not going to change them. We do not always speak to evil people because it will change them. But Jesus still spoke to the Pharisees. And we'll find many of the times Jesus spoke to the Pharisees, but he did not expect them to change. First off, you speak to them for this. It will expose their false premise. That's what you want to do. I want to expose their false premise. This is what Jesus is doing. He's exposing their false premise. The premise is that the Sabbath is not made for healing. You can't heal on the Sabbath. That's a false premise. That's not in the Bible. There's nothing in the Bible that says this. They have inserted it and they've talked about it so much that people assume it to be true. Media does that today. If they talk about something often enough, even though there's no truth to it, then people will eventually associate it with truth. So you've got to expose their false premise. Sometimes you speak to these situations to expose 
that they are false. There's a, there's a premise there that is, that is going on. I remember it was sometime, uh, a long time ago, we were in a, a bunch of people were over and we were having a conversation and somebody, you know, they were trying to be intelligent and say something smart on the thing. And they heard, I know, they just heard this. This wasn't the kind of person who dug this out on their own. They heard this and they were out there repeating it. And they made the statement like this. He said, how is it that hairdressers have to go through more schooling than police officers? Well, first off, it's not true at all. And they were given the time, I guess, a hairdresser. I don't know what the time for. It's too long ago I heard it. I don't know, maybe a year you had to go through school before that. And the police officer was just in school for like six months or whatever it was. It was, it was a lot shorter than the hairdresser was in school. And immediately on the inside, I didn't even look this up. I just knew her just from the, on the inside of me. I says, well, that's false. I said, because most of the training that the police officer get is not in the classroom. It's out there on the street. And so a rookie is assigned to a cop. And they, they follow that cop, and that cop is the one who says they're ready to go on their own. You can't learn what you have to learn as a police officer in the classroom. But you do have to learn a few basic things before you go out there on the street. But see, sometimes you just got to, I, I know it's not going to change them, but sometimes you just got to call the false premise out. And so you, you speak to these things not to change the people that's, that believe these things, but to expose the premise. And you may never change the people that said that thing, but you've exposed the premise. Feel free to do that. I love, I don't get to see it all that often, but every once in a while, you know, Facebook will put those little shorts up there, and you got one of those senators, like a Jim Jordan or something like that, who just is a bulldog on some of these things. And when they get a hold of something, they come after somebody, and they just, they have all their facts there, and they try and, and say, well, they just go right after them. Oh, I love that. When they do it, especially when the people that are on the chair uh, getting questioned, when, uh, you know, they try and hem and haul or give one of those wordy answers that says nothing. And I love it when they call it on. So expose the false premise. Secondly, expose the false teaching. Once you have a false premise, you'll have false teaching that comes from it. You want to expose these things. Third, you want to expose the false intentions. Because they say we want to do this, but they don't. They want to do something else. They say we want to preserve the law of Moses. No, you don't. No, you don't, because that's not what the law of Moses says. You do this so that those around can follow the light. We want them to follow the light. I made this note for you too. The power of the false is in the illusion that most follow or believe it. That's the power of what is false. We've given you that before. That's not new. But the power of the false is in the illusion that most follow or believe it. You know, you'll find this when you, when you, the young people that are here, or maybe you remember back in your days when you were in school and rumors go around. The power of the rumor is that people believe it, not that the rumor is true. It's truth is inconsequential. It's just, will people believe this? So that's what you're there to do to help get that out. Expose these things. The power of the light is the truth. That's the difference between light and darkness. All right, let's go on to verse 4. Then he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? Well, see, this is, this is undercutting all of their premise, their teaching, their intentions. He is going to bring all this out with this one question. You tell me, is it okay to do good or to do evil on the Sabbath? Tell me about that. 
Is it good to, to kill? Is that all right to do? Or to save a life? What's up with that? What should we do? But they kept silent. What are they saying when they keep silent? We don't have an answer. We can't give an answer on this because if it does, it's going to expose us. People will know what we're doing. And so they just keep silent. How many looked at the bulletin cartoon this morning? Jesus is not waiting to get permission afterwards. He's digging right in. You want me to get your permission? You tell me what's going to You tell me right now. Is it okay to do good? Is this all right to do? You tell me. If you want to give permission or not give permission, let's get, let's put it right out here. Here we go. Here's the man. Here's the withered hand. We all know his situation. Now, is it okay to do good? Tell me. This is in the meeting. He's teaching. This is an interruption in the meeting. He's up there teaching. And they're all thinking these things. And so Jesus just says, all right, we're not getting anywhere. We have to deal with this. And so he says to the man, step forward. Rise up. Be rising into the midst. But they kept silent. He's basically saying this, since you want to accuse me, tell me before anything and defend your position. Is it lawful? So he, what they want is we want Jesus to make the move and then we're going to come and attack his position on this. We're going to accuse him. What Jesus is saying is, before I make a move, defend your position. What is it? Do good or do evil? Oh, they're not used to this. We don't, we don't like this. How often do we feel like we need to defend our position? Do not feel like you gotta defend your position. They didn't want to defend our position. They just want to accuse. How many of it sounds like some political ads? We're in political ad season. Boy, I tell you what, uh, we're in a, some of the things we watch on TV, they'll have these ads. Oh, they're horrible. Absolutely terrible. All they are is accusations. And I've just gotten to the point that I don't care who put the ad on. If you're accusing somebody of something, then they probably did something good. That's just my way I look at it. If you're accusing somebody of something, more than likely, what you're accusing them of is false. I just go in that assumption. I don't know why they keep wanting to, to put these things out there, but they do. We had that new House Speaker elected, Mike Johnson. Anybody knew him before? I had no idea who this guy was. Never heard of him at all. But then, of course, you'll hear all kinds of people saying many different things about him, and they attacked his Christian faith and his biblical views, and then some people started bringing out some of the things that he had said before. I thought, oh, I like this guy. I never heard of him before, but I like this guy. <laughs> this is all right. I don't care if you have a D, an I, or an R after your name. If you speak against the Word of God, I am against you. That's just, I don't care what, your, what letters after your name. Don't matter to me. You see, we have to be people of truth. And regardless of where someone's political affiliation is, what are the words that are coming out of their mouth? Now, I've, I've had this for years. I'll, I'll make sure that I don't care if it's a D or an R after a president. If they do something that I think is against the word or is stupid, I will call it out. I don't care what it, what it is. If it's a Republican and they do something, when, when Donald, I like a lot of things that Donald Trump did, but when he did that thing with the virus 
and the, the, the uh, vaccines, and we're just going to bypass all the protocols we normally do. I said it from the beginning when he first did it. This is bad. You should not be doing it. Because I know why all those protocols are there from my background and, and those kind of things. I, knew, I don't care what letters after his name. If you're going to try and throw money at a problem, and we've seen Republican and Democrat do this, I am against you for throwing money at a problem. I didn't like it when Reagan did it. I didn't like it when Bush did it. I didn't like it when Obama did it. I don't care what letters after their name. Throwing money at a problem doesn't solve a problem. Ingenuity solves a problem. That's how you got to fix it. So make sure if you're going to stand for something that you don't, you're not influenced by D, R, or I. You're influenced by truth. This is the truth. And if we have someone and they get a D, an R, or an I, and they do something good, I can say something good about them. If they do something that is evil, that is against the word, I can say, and I can call that out too. Because we stand for truth. We don't stand for political parties. We've got a couple of political parties here, and we're going to see that come in place. Uh, not Republican, Democrat, Independent, but we have a couple of political parties in this story, and we'll go dig into that just a little bit. I want people out there to defend their unbiblical views in a country that is founded on them. Make them do it. Make them defend their unbiblical views. These stupid views that when people are born, well, we don't know what sex they are. Yes, you do. God does not make mistakes. I don't pick on my God. When God had them come out, they were what they were in the womb, and they will continue to be that way. We don't, we don't have that issue. We don't, I don't have an issue. If you're a man, I don't care what you call yourself. I don't care how long your hair grows. And I don't care what you change your name to. You don't get on the women's swimming team. That's just the way that it is. This is just stupid stuff that people do. And let's make them defend it. They want us to believe the science and their science can't even tell if it's a girl or a boy. Be like Jesus. Put those of darkness on the defensive. Go after them. Let the Spirit of God give you word to speak. Matthew chapter 12, verse 11. Then he said to them, What man is there among you who has one sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not lay hold of it and lift it out. Of how much more value then is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Well, he established it. He established what was lawful by what people did. Isn't that interesting? He didn't go back to the Mosaic Law. He established what was lawful by what people did. Which of you, you guys who want to accuse here, which of you, if you got a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, you're not going down there and getting it out. You want that sheep preserved. You're going to go out there and you're going to do that. You don't have any consideration about, well, I don't know if we should do that. So what is lawful on the Sabbath? How many have ever asked the question, what is actually lawful to do on a Sabbath? Anybody ever asked that question? couple people. I asked that question. How do we know what's lawful in the Sabbath? Now, if you go back into Exodus and you look at the law that is given there, it just says, don't do any work. If you do, you should die. <laughs> okay. I guess it's important that we ought to figure out what the work is. Now, the law does not define the work, so the Pharisees decided, since the law didn't define the work, I'm going to help you out, and we're going to define it for you. So here's what work is. Walking too far. Unless you're going to a meal. 
So what the Pharisees would do the day before the Sabbath that they had a place to go is they would set up meals at each place. Oh, little tiny meals. So they go to the one, okay, well, it's legal for us to walk here. And then they would have that little meal and then they'd go to the next space. And then they'd go to the next space. And then they'd go to the next space and they would be able to cover the distance they needed to cover and still stay within the uh, sabbatical laws. They were okay. Hmm. Now we have laws we are raised with. What it's okay and what it's not okay to do with the Sabbath. We may laugh at those about how far to walk and so forth. But how many have ever grown up in the era? No movies on Sunday. <laughs> yeah. I know you got a few now. No chores on Sunday. How many kids? You want to reinstate this? <laughs> Anybody out there want to reinstate this? No chores on, no chore Sunday. It's a Sabbath. You can just say, Mom, it's a Sabbath. I'll die if I do any chores. Uh, no exertion. Shouldn't do anything that is heavy. Nothing like that. But these are, these are things that we've had in our modern day laws. So how do we know for sure? How do I know? I mean, it's important. Don't you, if you go back in Exodus and you look at it, if you do work on the Sabbath, the penalty is put to death. Hmm. But the Bible doesn't tell us what work is. So I did this. I did the next best thing. What else does the Sabbath laws apply to? Anybody remember? There's one other thing the Sabbath laws apply to, beside people. Land. That is why Israel went into exile, because they did not give the land its Sabbaths. So if the land is supposed to have a Sabbath, and on the seventh year, and man is supposed to have this, the Sabbath on the seventh day, would it be a safe assumption that the laws that govern the land would be similar to the things that govern the man. Well, see, that's the assumption I made. I said, let me find out what the land laws are. And so I went on back out there, and I just looked them up to make sure. And that's in Exodus chapter 23 and verse 10. They'll put it up on the screen for you, but I wrote the reference for you in your outline, so you have it. Six years you shall sow your land and gather in its produce. For six years you'll do this. You're going to sow the land. You're going to gather in the produce. But the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow. That the poor of your people may eat and what they leave the beast of the field may eat. In like manner you shall do with your vineyard and your olive grove. Six days you shall do your work and on the seventh day you shall rest. That your ox and your donkey may rest and the son of your female servant and the stranger may be refreshed. So. Here's what happens on the seventh year Sabbath for the land. You didn't sow it and you didn't reap it. But it didn't mean the land didn't work. If you sow grain on a field and you decide this year I'm not going to sow any grain, what is most likely to grow in the field? Grain. Now, why is grain going to grow in a field where you didn't sow it? Because there is leftover seed from the harvest before. You don't quite harvest all of it. Some of it will fall behind. Some of it gets left behind, and that will grow, and that will become something. So here's what he's saying will happen. In the seventh year, you who own the land, you don't sow it, and whatever grows, you don't reap it. Whatever grows in the land, you leave it for the poor. They come on out to the land and they can have at it. If you've got olive groves, if you've got uh, uh, vineyards, 
Once again, there is no sowing. They grow every year. You leave it. You don't harvest it. You don't pull it out. You don't take the grapes. You don't take the olives. You leave them out there. So, the poor of the land will go out there and they'll get it. And whatever they don't get falls to the ground. Guess who gets the next part? Beasts of the field. The animals can go out there and get it. So that is what's, what is to happen. Now, Israel never did this. A lot of reasons why they, they think uh, one greed, another one, and it's actually a, a fairly plausible argument, is when did the seven years actually start? Because when they came in, they conquered this place, they conquered this place, they conquered this place, they conquered this place, and they went around conquering. And then after they conquered, all the tribes went out and they conquered. So they finished up the conquering. So when did the first year actually start? I saw that. I said, yeah, you know what? When did that first year actually start? I don't It may, may, may have uh, left them some confusion, but eventually you can say, you know what? We farmed this thing seven years. We, we kind of missed. We need to go back, but they didn't do it. They didn't do that at all. So if you look at this, it is not wrong for the land to work, to produce things, to grow things. That is not what is wrong. What is wrong is sowing and harvesting. That's what he doesn't want you to do. I don't care how much grows out in the field, God is saying. But you're not going to work the land. The land's going to get rest out of this. So whatever grows in the field is fine. And other people can come and harvest it. You cannot harvest it as the owner. All right, that gives me some clues. What should we not do as far as the Sabbath is concerned? What you should not do is not things that are that are exerting. That, that can't be on it because Jesus himself saying, if your sheep falls into a pit, who's not going to climb in there and get it out? Is that exerting? Absolutely. That's okay. He already said do good. That's all right. It's okay to do good. It's okay to save a life. How many of y'all know if you're going to save a life, that may take some work? The problem is not work. The problem is not that you do work on the day. The problem is that you do things for profit. That you do things for harvest. He is saying this. If you spend seven days out of the week focused on gaining profit and making money, that is wrong. You need to have one day when you pull back and you are no longer trying to make money. You are no longer pursuing the things of that nature. And you pull back and you rest. Because what is rest for one person is not rest for another. You may see brother so-and-so say it's a Sabbath, we're supposed to be resting, and they're out mowing their lawn. (gasps) They're working. (laughs) Oh, they're going to die. I should help it along and go out there and stone them. It may be that brother so-and-so gets so relaxed just going out there and mowing and just having a good old time. This is just something that they do. They're relaxed. It's not work for them at all. But you see, if you have, if you have, if you're one of those persons, you can't ever be off from work. You've always got to be doing stuff to make money. He's saying that's what you got to watch. Pull back. I want the land to have a year where it's not concerned about making any money. And the actual promise is this. If you will do it in the sixth year, before you actually do this, I will make the field produce twice as much. You won't need it. They never experienced that. 
because I never trusted God in that. We have to do the same thing. You can go out there. You can have some fun. You can do some things that might be considered strenuous. It's not that your body can't do it. It's that God wants you to relax as far as pursuing money, making a living, work. You need that time that you need to pull back. So hopefully that will help you make some more sense out of it. If you want to believe differently, that's fine. Just go back to the Word of God and make sure that you have, uh, have what's in the Word. But don't let your laws for the Sabbath be pushed on someone else. Because you may say, well, I can't do this on the Sabbath. That doesn't mean somebody else can't. Mark chapter 3, verse 5. Let's go on. And when he had looked around at them with anger. Now look at this. He looked around. How many of you have ever been in a room and looked around? Kids, you've been in, you just started school. You're in the classroom for the first time. What do you do? You look around. What are you looking for? We're looking for something, right? We are looking who's in the room. When I was going to high school, you know, we had, uh, we had big homerooms. And they were, uh, I don't know how many, our grade, we probably had a dozen, 15, I don't know how many. We had a lot. Because there's only 30 in the, in the class. Uh, 30 was the max, you know, 25, 30 was the most they would put in a homeroom. And we had a number of people to, to get in there. I think we had like 450. Mine wasn't super huge. Other ones are bigger. But I didn't matter anyway. Because when I came in the homeroom, I didn't come in and look around and say, oh, who's in my homeroom? I never did that. All I had to do, I came in the homeroom, I looked for one person. You know who it was? I looked for the person that's considered the teacher, the person who oversaw that, oversaw that homeroom, because all I had to do was go up to that teacher and say, I am excused from your homeroom. I will not be here. Ever. <laughs> and, and I would leave. I would let them know, because I was in the homeroom for audiovisual, and we used to put on the news show for the for all the people that were in their homerooms, and we could do anything we wanted in there. We'd get up, walk around, do all sorts of stuff. Everybody in homeroom, guess what they had to do? Sit at their desk, look at their books, watch the TV. Not us! No. If we were not on, we could play cards. <laughs> and some of them did. It was great. I don't know why everybody in the world didn't get in on that, but they didn't, and I never told anybody that they should. We kept it a good secret. It was the best place to be because we had a past that said we are AV people. If they caught me in the hallway walking around and I didn't have a pass, it didn't matter. I'd whip out my AV card. Oh, after a while, they just get to know you. Oh, it's Steve. He's probably setting up a projector somewhere or doing some kind of thing like that. They never even ask you anymore. It's great. Lunchtime, people go down to the lunchroom and they all sit around there. What happens when you get done lunch? If you're in a big school, get done lunch, what do you have to do? Sit around and wait for the bell to ring to go to your next class. Not us. No. When we got done lunch, guess what we did? We would walk right on down the hall, right past the hall monitors that were to stop anyone from leaving the lunch area. We'd walk right past them. Ha! <laughs> See you later. And we'd walk on down to our homeroom and we would do whatever we we watch TV. We could do whatever we wanted to for the rest of lunch. I don't know if you still have that option, but if you have that option and you're in school, AV, man, that's the way to go. <laughs> Audio visual. It is a phenomenal little place to, to be. We used to hide out on, on that. 
But otherwise, you come into the homeroom and you're looking around. Who's here? You walk into the class. Who's here? You walk into some place you go to. You look. You look around. Who is here? If you go into the Walmart, what's one of the first things that people do? We look at the line. How long is it? How long do I expect? We look around. When we come into a place, we look around to try and find things. Find out what's going on. That's what they did here. And when he had looked around at them with anger. If Jesus is looking around, how many know he has to be looking for something? So I asked the question, what is Jesus looking for? What's he looking for? And when he had looked around at them with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was as restored as whole as the other. Alright, so I want to know, what's Jesus looking for? Is he looking for the Pharisees to repent? I don't think he expects that. But he's looking around at the whole place here. He is looking around. And then it says that he became anger. In the Greek, there are three words for anger. One's to, one means to be red hot mad. You get there elevated in a jiffy and then you come back down. Once in a while, this is used of God. Generally, the word for anger when it's used for God is the Greek word orge, which means it's a, it's a, it's a simmering pot. You slowly, slowly, slowly get to the place of anger and then you slowly move back on down again. Thumos, which is the first one, that one you get to really, really fast, but then you come down from it really, really fast. There's a third one that is not used in a godly way. You are not to get into it at all and it is a terrible type of anger and uh, basically the Bible says don't get involved with that. So those first two are the only ones that really need to concern us. In the book of Revelation, you see that first one quite a bit where God gets red hot fast. So when he looked around with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored as whole as the other. So he's looking for something. He had just spoken to him. He had just said some things. Remember what he said? Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they kept silent. Then it says that he, when he looked around. So he says this to him and he's looking around. What is he looking for? Think of it. Go back into your school days. Kids, you can think back there to when you've been in school, in the classroom. And the teacher asks a question. What does the teacher do after she asks the question? She's asking the question. She expected an answer from the class. She asks the question. What does she do? Or he? Look around the room. They're looking for a couple of things. One, can we catch somebody napping? Right? Isn't that, isn't that good? Catch somebody. I, I had that happen one time. Only one time that I can remember. And that was in geometry class. Because for some reason, geometry was easy for me. It was so easy. The class didn't challenge me at all. And I was bored in the class. And one time I was just staring out the window. Just, this is so boring. I know this stuff. I, got, I mean, I aced every test in the geometry. I aced every single one. I don't know why geometry came to me easy. I don't study it anymore. It didn't grab hold of me. I didn't love it. It's just for some reason it came easy to me. And I remember, I can still remember this day, being in that class, staring out the window, thinking about whatever, and the teacher calls on me, Steve, what's the answer? And I look at him, and I just had this blank stare on my face. And he said, he said of course you don't know. You're not listening. <laughs> I remember that one real, real well. Jesus is looking around for something. He may be looking around for people who are responding to the question, who have suddenly had a change of heart, who are saying, oh yeah, 
Why would it be wrong to do this? And apparently, what he is looking for, he has not seen. Which will tell you this. That the people in the meeting more sided with the Pharisees than with Jesus. And he was angry. You guys would rather hold on to your laws and let this man suffer. Boy, you are far from God. He looked around. They've been confronted on their false truth. They've been confronted on it. He just caught it right out. Will any respond positively? Or are they going to hang on to the old and and not accept the new? Which one are they going to do? This may be how you always thought. This is maybe how you always believed. But now the light has come. What will you do? This is what Jesus is looking for. You've always thought this way about the Sabbath. You've always thought this way about work on the Sabbath. You've always looked at it. I'm not supposed to do all these things that the Pharisees told me not to do. And Jesus brought the light in and says, Is it good on the Sabbath to do evil or to do good? To save a life or to kill? Never had it put to me that way before. And he's looking around the room and he's not seeing what he wants to see. And he's angry. He's mad at this. Understand this about the, the enemy. The enemy is coming after you every which way that he can. This is stuff we've all told you before, but the enemy wants to steal the word from you. He wants to steal the word. We know that from the parables. The enemy wants to pervert the word that's in you. If he can't steal it, he wants to pervert it. If he can't steal it, can't pervert it, he wants to deceive me to disobey the word that I know. Did that in the garden. Steal, pervert, deceive. If he can't do those, he wants to kill the life of God in me. He wants to get rid of that life of God that's in me. Overall, basically, he wants to neutralize you. If the enemy cannot neutralize you in these tactics, he will try another. And here it is. Are you ready? We can become so careful about not being deceived that we become stubborn and unteachable. The people that he's looking around in this room seem to be so careful about not being deceived that when light comes in, they do not recognize the deception they have already fallen into. Let me remind you of some things we went through because I'd like to remind you about this a few more times. Way back in in August, it was actually August the 22nd, Back when we were, Wednesday night, we were doing the series on Zechariah. It was number 15, if you want to go back and review any of that. But we gave you four parts to help you identify a false or a misinterpreted teaching. Remember what those four parts were? I hope you get these down. I hope they are burned into your memory. I'm going to give them to you again because they're important. If you get these things down, if you will carry these around, you will make sure that this does not happen in your life. First off, Revelation. Too many people reason out the teaching. They reason out. The Pharisees are reasoning things out. What is work? They're reasoning out. There's no revelation there. Paul got revelation in the New Testament. Daniel got revelation in the Old Testament. Moses got revelation when he was up on the mountain. Revelation. Something that is revealed to your spirit and you illuminate your mind. Reasoning or realizations, they come to your mind and you try and teach your spirit. Second was isolation. If someone is going to misinterpret or teach you something false, they're going to isolate 
whatever it is from other places in the Word. They're going to take one part of the Word, going to isolate it. We can't let the rest of the Word shed light on this. Isolation is one. Persuasion. Does the Word that's being taught encourage or enlighten our way towards obedience, correction, or His promises? Does it embolden us to disobedience or self-righteousness by appeasing our flesh? What does it persuade us to do? And the last one, separation. Is the prophecy separate from what the world thinks? And we've given you a number of examples along the way with this one. Remember the last time the kids were in and we gave you that separation? And we gave you, all right, here's this way you can look at it. There's this way you can look at it. Which way does the world agree with? Just look at it from that point of view. Is what is being taught separate from the world or will the world receive it? You can go back and review all that. We spent a lot more time on it and we also showed you a prophecy that was misinterpreted and caused all sorts of problems for Israel when Jesus, in Jesus' day. Let's go on to verse 6. Then the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. So their law said, no healing or helping people on the Sabbath, but yes to killing and destroying people. Isn't that amazing? Their law said no to healing and helping people on the Sabbath, but yes to killing and destroying. We can go away on the Sabbath and let's plan how we might destroy them. This is still the Sabbath. Huh. So your laws have to have consistency. That's why I, I was saying if a political party can influence you more than the Word of God, that's not the place you want to be. Make sure that the Word of God is the thing that influences you. And it says here that the Herodians and the Pharisees plotted together. These guys don't like each other. But you got enemies now becoming friends. Now here's what's interesting. How did Jesus heal the man? Did Jesus touch him? Did he walk over to him? There was absolutely no work that Jesus did, is there? He stood there. He was teaching on the Sabbath. They were okay with that. He has not stopped doing anything that they were okay with a minute before. They were okay with it. But because this man was healed, and really all he was healed by was what Jesus said. Stretch out your hand. That was it. Apparently it's something that he was not able to do. This man had to decide. While he, while he was rising into the midst, this man had to make a decision. I've got all these people in the synagogue who are going to be mad with me. And Jesus says to me, stretch out your hand. Do I listen to Jesus or do I do what everyone else wants me to do? Hmm. That's a question we have to ask sometimes too. Let's first off look at this partnership. The Pharisees and the Herodians. How many know what each one of them believe? Most people don't. We just know that there are two different groups that are in there. The Herodians, they're supporters of Herod Antipas. Now, these guys may not make anything, uh, may not uh, mean anything to you, but some of the history is this. There was Herod the Great. Herod the Great is the one who fixed up the temple, um, made the tower of uh, uh, Masada, made the, the, the uh, defensive area there. He did a lot of building things. He liked to build. and He did a lot of building things. He was Herod the Great. He was the one who wanted to kill Jesus. And he decided to kill all the infants two years down. So he make sure he get Jesus and he didn't get Jesus. And remember that Moses, uh, Joseph was told flee to Egypt. 
And then after a while, he was told, go back because the people that want him dead are die have died themselves. The person that was being spoken of was Herod the Great. Herod the Great's throne was then given to his two sons. There was a legal battle that went all the way up to Rome between the two sons. And the two sons, one is mentioned here in Matthew chapter 2, verse 19 through 23. Now when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the young child's life are dead. Then he arose, took the young child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. And when he heard it, Archelaus, brother of Herod Antipas, was reigning over Judea instead of his father Herod. He was afraid to go there. This is Herod Archelaus. It is the brother of Herod Antipas. Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside into the region of Galilee and he came and dwelt in the city called Nazareth that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. So you have the two, the, the two sons of Herod, Archelaus and Antipas. These are the ones that are going to be taking over the throne. Antipas has a lawsuit and it is found in favor of him. He gets um, some things out of that, but I'm not going to get into all the all that detail. The Herodians are people who favor the house of Herod. Specifically at this point, it is Herod Antipas. That is the house that they are favoring. They believe that as a, as a Herodian, taxes are okay. We want to support Rome. In fact, we want to have more Roman laws than we do Jewish laws. They were basically uh, Jewish people who believed Rome was okay. And we are favorable towards Rome and we want Roman things to go on here more than Jewish things. The Pharisees, uh-uh. We don't like Rome. We don't want Rome here. Remember when that question was asked of Jesus? Is it lawful to pay taxes? Go back and find out who the two groups are. Guess what two groups are there? The Pharisees and the Herodians. Because the Herodians are saying, yes, pay them. And the Pharisees are saying, no. We don't owe them anything. And so what does Jesus do? Gives them a great answer and exposes their hypocrisy. Does a, does a great job with that. But this is what they are. So you have one, basically put it to you this way. You have a religious group that is more politically motivated and another religious group that is more legaliz um, legalization. We want to make you spiritual by rules and regulations. What you can and what you can't do. Neither of those two groups are good. Can you see that some of that goes on today? We have not quite gotten away from it. Now Jesus was angry and he grieved. So he tells the man, stretch out your hand. Stretch out, and apparently the man stretched out his hand. I put this in your outline for you. It's nothing I hadn't given you before, but just reviewing on this. Questioning without doing is doubt. If you question, don't do, that's doubt. If you're doing without questioning, that's faith. Here's one for you to ponder. I'm not going to give you the answer on this. You can ponder it on your own. What would doing after questioning be? If doing... Without questioning is faith, and questioning without doing is doubt. What do you think that doing after questioning would be? All right, let's get to the end of this. Why did the negative attitudes not stop the power of God to heal the man 
with the withered hand. Because there's some negative vibes going on in this place. No one seems to be receiving from Jesus' teaching. And Jesus even stops in the middle of it and heals this one. Let's take a look at the other examples. The rooftop. The doubt in the room would not stand in the way of the faith on the roof. Jesus looked up and saw their faith. Had nothing to do with the doubt that is in the room. He looked at their faith. Their faith completely trumped everything going on in the room. He looked at their faith and they got what their faith, despite all the unbelief in the room, they got what they wanted. This man was raised up off that. As we uh, looked at it, he probably had a stroke. In the story of Jairus, the doubt in the room was having an effect on Jairus and his wife. It was causing them to have, a, have an issue, probably especially his wife. And so he puts them out. If the people of doubt are having an effect upon you, you need to get them out or get away from them. But apparently in the rooftop, power of God could still move even though there's a whole lot of people questioning it down there. Here in this one, this man, the faith of this man is never mentioned, is it? We don't have that he came to synagogue to get healed. He didn't, didn't say anything about, I came because Jesus is in the house and I came to see Jesus and I want to get healed. He didn't come for that. He just kind of came and sat down. It seems like it's his pattern. This is what I do. On the Sabbath, I come to synagogue. Here he is. He's coming to synagogue. He doesn't seem to have any faith, any expectation for anything coming up. He's just here. And then he gets called out. Faith of the man is never mentioned. But the doubt and the opposition sure was. Jesus told the man two things to do. First off, rise. And the second, Stretch out your hand. He did both. He did both. Now, everyone else in the room, what do they want him to do? They prefer he disobeyed Jesus. But now that Jesus has called them on the carpet and they can't really accuse Jesus anymore, just sit down. We don't want you healed. We don't want this going on. Will someone else's rules, laws, alter your obedience? Now, you, you may think of some times when you were in school. Kids, you're in school. You're in places. Uh, maybe some of the meetings that you go into. Maybe some of the uh, extracurricular activities that we have. Maybe over in the workplace. Maybe in the neighborhood. Maybe wherever it is that you go, other people are going to have rules and they're going to try and push those rules off on you. Will you stop obeying God because of the rules of the people around you? Will you change how you look at the male-female issue? Will you change how you address people because the laws want you to address them this way? That's what you have to come to. And there'll probably be more pressure as, as time goes on. Will you give in to the laws that are being created to get you to change? Now, some people fight back and say, no, you can't, can't do that. The Constitution says this. And we're well versed in our Constitution and our rights in there. No, no, you can't make me do this. You can't make me take that. You can't make me go there. You can't make me not go there. This is what's in the Constitution. Yeah, but we have to put that aside for right now. There's nothing in the Constitution that you put it aside for any reason. In fact, it's in the Constitution that we don't put it aside. Don't let that happen. Will someone else's rules... Alter your obedience to the word of God. This man did not let other people's rules alter his obedience. He rose when he was told. He stretched out when he was told. 
and he received the healing. Jesus didn't tell him to go home, leave the meeting, like he did for some of the others. Now, people that are around you, they don't always like positive speech. They don't always like people going around praising the Lord. Are you going to give in to their rules? Or are you going to stay with what God says? People around, they're going to, they're going to know what to, we want you to do this. We want you to say this. We want you to yield this way. Daniel, his buddies, they had pressures going that direction. They didn't give. Peter, James, John, disciples, we saw they had pressure. They didn't give. Maybe people around you use language or talk about other people in wrong ways. Will you stay with your beliefs or are you going to go with theirs? Jesus to this, he said, no, I'm going with my father. My father sent me here to minister healing. My father sent me here to teach. So as long as I am here, I am going to teach and I am going to minister healing. And I don't care if it's a Sabbath or not. Now, if you want to talk about work rules, Jesus is a teacher and a healer. And what are two things he did on the Sabbath? He taught and he healed. Are you going to stand with Jesus? No, I'm not going to let other people move me. What's the Word of God say? How does the Word of God say I should talk? How does the Word of God say I should think? How does the Word of God say I should treat people? Because there's pressure sometimes. We don't like that person over there. We like to treat them poorly. You can sometimes feel the pressure to treat people poorly. Maybe in class. Maybe uh, in one of the, the activities that you have. Don't, don't treat them poorly. Be kind. No, the Word of God tells me that I should be kind. This is what the Word of God says. I'm going to stay with what the Word of, Word of God says. Would you all stand up? And... Well, Father, we thank you for the examples we have in your Word. That we can honor the Sabbath. That we can do this in our days here, but we are not made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for us, as Jesus taught us. There are many people who try and put pressure on us to conform to their way of thinking, whether it be a pretend religious one or it be a secular one. But Father, we are going to stay with the Word of God. We're going to think what the Word of God teaches us to think. We're going to speak the words that the Word of God teaches us to speak. We're going to act the way the Word of God teaches us to act. And we are not going to change it because of the pressure from the people that are around us. I thank you, Father, that you help us in all the things that we face here, just as you helped Jesus, just as through the Spirit you spoke things to him and he would always say and he would always do the things that the Father told him to say and the things that the Father told him to do. I thank you that you help us in this life as well. We give you the praise and the glory for it in Jesus' name. Amen.